again and welcome to another installment of Club 46, driven by Bridgestone, where each week we sit down with an all-time Cleveland Brown great. And this week, we are thrilled to be joined by number 19, Bernie Kosar. Bernie, you look great. How you feeling? Feeling good, young man. Thank good. you, Jake. Good to be with Very you. Very good. Uh, I want to dive right into this. I don't even want to mess around with the small stuff. When you're asked by folks that aren't Clevelanders, to characterize your time as a Cleveland Brown, how do you look back on that now? I definitely look back on it being highly humbled, incredibly honored. I mean, almost, still almost a dream state, you know, to grow up in Youngstown, Ohio. Even and now? Even now, as, as you get older, um, you really do still reflect like that. I don't want to, I'm not saying that to be cool or overdramatic or, or emotional, although as we get older, I think we do get more emotional with yeah. it. But again, to be a little boy growing up here, um, the Steelers, we were 0-16, um, the Jinx in Three Rivers Stadium, um, the AFC Central, um, Paul Brown and the Art Modell uh, issues and legacy, and for Paul Brown to be with the Cincinnati Bengals, for Chuck Knoll to be the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers and the Rooney family, and heck, Jerry Glanville and Warren Moon were down in, um, down in Houston, to be able to play teams like that. and. Um, in that black and blue division and being a little boy growing up and watching those type of rivalries and then be the guy leading your team. I mean, words can't describe how, how blessed and honored I am to, to have that. All of us, when we're little boys in our backyard, we have those dream scenarios. When you were growing up in Boardman, did, did you pretend that you were the Cleveland Browns quarterback? Did you one day actually visualize being the quarterback of this tradition-rich franchise? You know, it's probably cliche to say, it's easy to say right now, but absolutely. I mean, as a, as a boy in Youngstown, Ohio, half the cities for Pittsburgh, half the cities for Cleveland. My father and my grandfather were big uh, Cleveland Browns fans, and, and they used to say this growing up every year. If we lost every game we played, but we beat the Steelers twice, it was a positive season. <laughs> well, every year as a little boy, um, we would always lose in Three River Stadium and the Steelers had those dynasties of the 70s. So it almost was that unrealistic goal that you could win at, at Three Rivers. So for me to, to be able to, to have that as a, as a focal point and, and to have, uh, you know, have those victories there was special. Do you have um, a single favorite memory wearing that orange helmet? You know... Um, I think a lot of guys, we, you know, we, there's a lot of games, you know, fortunately my memory's still good that you could, you could remember a lot of them. And I think I've, again, not to sound cocky, but I've really been so blessed that uh, there isn't probably any one game or any one play because there's been so many of them. There's been so many amazing games. Um, but Ozzie Newsom used to say this, and it was something that really resonated with me. And I know we have the new stadium and it's, it's beautiful. But the old stadium, yes, we call it beautiful, but it was beautifully ugly. And it, <laughs> it was. It personified Cleveland, it, really. It really personified the team. It personified the, the stage of, of our city at the time and, and the stage of, of football at the time. And um, it wasn't aesthetically pleasing. And when you came out through the old baseball dugouts, <laughs> um, the fans didn't know you were coming. And when that first orange helmet hit the dugout, and that roar of the 80,000 people. That, was, that, that roar was deafening. But from that point forward, after hearing that noise, um, the focus, the, the intensity to win, 
Um, that laser drive just to get a W really blocked everything out. Did you and, not hear this, the, the fans when you were playing? And from that point forward, the fans, really? the fans, there was nothing that got in the way of what was happening in that rectangle. I understand that you played in so many big games. There's so many big moments when you were leading this franchise. Um, and I, I understand the difficulty in picking that one. But if I asked you that you were going to be responsible to pick one highlight of your career to put into a video vault that generations from now we can show your great-grandkids, this is what great-grandpa Bernie was all about. What single play would that be? Um, you know, the collaboration of plays uh, was so much fun for me, and Gary Danielson was amazing uh, with me, uh, for me, in my transition and into the league and in playing successful football and anything in successful life with that. And for us, um, I remember in 1986 um, coming up with the clock play, the spike play, which now is a commonplace play to everybody, but nobody had ever thought about it. Everybody had just used it as a throwaway play. And it was more of a philosophical way that we got about that because I didn't like to waste plays. I didn't like to take plays off. So when me and Gary came up with that play, we maximized the use of it, and we actually used it. Um, Dan Marino uh, and me used it uh, with the Dolphins in the mid-'90s with Coach Shula, mm -hmm. but we actually used it in the Jets' double overtime game in 1986, um, and there's other components to that play that, that weren't as sexy as the <laughs> outcome uh, against the Jets nine years later. Right. But things like that, concepts like that, um, collaborations like that that really have defined and changed the game. I know we came up with that play and now to see other teams and basically every... It's part of the game now. It's part of every team's game plan. Um, every defense coaches it, every offense coaches it from the high school level up. And again, to have those type of influences on three or four different types of conceptual plays um, is just really special to me. You've always been the cerebral guy, the thinking man's quarterback. Is that because your physical limitations and because maybe you weren't the prototypical pro-style, beautiful delivery passer? Did you make a conscious decision that I've, I've got to be that guy to, to make a career in the NFL? Excellent point. It's absolutely a, a key component of how I play football and really how I live life. We could, we could talk about what we don't have. Um, we could talk about... Um, all the mistakes and the negative things. I like to think about what I do have and what I do do good. Um, I was incredibly slow. I wasn't very strong. So I had to take advantage of the cerebral side of it, the X's and O's, the chess match side of it. And I was so blessed to have a coach like um, Howard Schnellenberger early in my career, Mark Tressman, um, Jimmy Johnson, um, you know, Gary Danielson, although he was a teammate and friend, um, his level of knowledge, even to this day, is, is just gave me such an amazing start from an early point in my career. What was it like being not just a Cleveland Brown in the late 80s and early 90s when this city was Browns crazy? What was it like being Bernie Kosar in this city during that time? You know, I was, I was so I'm blessed and I'm absolutely not complaining um, because I do love the love and respect that everybody had for it. But I took the responsibility of being the quarterback. I took the responsibility of trying to win the division. 
because when I was younger, I didn't see us do that that much. So to see, I took that responsibility as almost an obsessive goal, um, an obsessive responsibility, and that was all I tried to focus on. And that aspect of it didn't really lend itself much for me to have a lot of time to be out there really paying attention to what was going on because I, I had a really singular focus of, of what was going to go on in my huddle within that rectangle. You were all about the game, weren't you? It was all about what was going to happen on Sunday. I mean, it was 16 beautiful chances to go out there. So again, we started out the interview talking about what do you want as a little boy? I mean, I haven't had to grow up. I've got to be a quarterback and play in an amazing sport with, uh, with a game and uh, with a bunch of my friends out there. That's yeah. absolutely something that I'm blessed to do. When you weren't doing football stuff but hanging with the guys, who were your guys? Who, who, were, who was your crew when you played with the Browns? Well, again, the great thing about it was probably all of us are hanging out. I mean, yeah. you know, we still today, you know, we joke around with, with K-Mac, Ernest Biner, Matt, Webb, Lange. I mean, I, I almost don't want to name. Most all, of the offensive guys, right? Yeah, I don't want to name all the guys, you know, because I'm going to leave some out. But, I yeah. mean, you know, heck, no. Man, you, you go with Hanford and Minnie and, sure. and, and Clay. Did you have and a, and a, a guy big you dad. considered to be your best friend? Well, no, you know, you hang out with guys. And, unfortunately, um, you know, there's – um, all the guys I just named. There's Gary Danielson I've named multiple times. Paul Farron is my roommate. Heck, um, so many things happen special that we're brothers to this day, you know, and, and the bond and relationships that you have. I mean, um, you know, I was blessed to play almost nine years here in Cleveland. The average career is 3.41 years right now. So you tend to have lots of relationships through the course of your almost nine years here, 12 years in the NFL. Um, so each year is a year onto itself, and you, you, you try to live. And even now, I, I try to tell the younger players and even my kids, you know, live for today, do the best you can today, get the most out of it tomorrow. Um, but that relationship with the guys, with the offensive linemen, the camaraderie that we had, I mean, Paul Fair and our centers. Um, heck, we used to go out. Um, do lineman nights uh, with the whole team and end up with 50 guys at, <laughs> at Fridays in Great Northern Mall. And it's funny is people used to say we were winning so many games back then that um, um, we got free drinks and free food everywhere because everybody loved us. And that's absolutely not true. <laughs> Nobody paid for anything. I got every bill, okay? That was... <laughs> the quarterback always pays. Come yeah, on. but all the, all the establishments that said they took care of us, they did not. <laughs> you played, you uh, paid for plenty they of, uh, padded of tabs. The, they padded the tabs. Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns performance when it matters most. That's why Bridgestone Dueler tires boast up to an 80,000 mile limited warranty. So they're in it for the long haul because nothing says endurance like season after season of clutch performance. Bridgestone, official tire of the Cleveland Browns. Conditions apply. Log on to BridgestoneTire.com warranty for details. Bernie, let's go way back to growing up um, in Boardman. What was life like for you as a young kid? You know, um, it's been a lot, lot talked about. Times are different back then as they were today. So some of the things that happened to me back then that maybe I would say, people would say, oh, that was challenging or tough or poor me. I, I don't look at it like that. I think I had a great childhood come, growing up. You know, 
were there fighting going on? Was there a little physical contact? Absolutely. Those are the signs of the times yeah. back then. And it's actually part of what really has toughened me up to be able to withstand, you know, what I'm going through now. I mean, to, you know, to play as, as many years as we've had, you know, to have 35-some surgeries, 70-some broken bones, um, you develop that aura of, of some toughness from, from your youth. And I'm really proud of, you know, my family in Youngstown, Ohio, of, you know, at times you don't like it, but, you know, you get tough. You toughen up growing up there. Life in general in Youngstown could be tough. Yeah, and especially, you know, especially in the, in the 70s. And, you know, um, we were the bomb. Cleveland and Youngstown had some issues going on with the bomb capital of, of America. And, sure. You know, and then, you know, I had to, you have to grow up kind of quick with those type of situations going on around you. And then, you know, go to the University of Miami. And right after... Uh, Fidel Castro opened up the, the jails and they had the Mario boat lift down in South Florida. You know, that was another really interesting uh, growing up stage of your life that sure. you, either, you either need to toughen up and grow up or, or you don't survive. Were sports a big part of your life as a kid? Were you a big sports fan, big sports family? Absolutely. Sports, sports is the savior. I mean, growing up in, again, growing up in Northeastern Ohio, growing up in Youngstown, it really helps define you. But it was the steel industry of the 70s, and the steel industry was closing down. There were really no manufacturing jobs in Youngstown, Ohio at that, at that point. And really the only way to, I don't want to say get out, but the only really way to better yourself was through education and through sports. And we didn't have any money to continue education, so to, so to do that you had to get football scholarships, you had to get sports scholarships. For you, that was really your life raft, wasn't it? That, that, Sports. That was your chance out, yes. Yeah. That was your chance for your family's success. You started uh, when you were young as a baseball player. Um, dreams of being a big leaguer? Hey, when you're young and, 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 <laughs> and the future you're not really sure of, your, your dreams to be any type of big leaguer, pro football, <laughs> pro hoops, pro baseball. But, yeah, actually, I, I think growing up, I, I thought I was better in baseball. Um, you play baseball uh, more growing up, and uh, and actually, I, I didn't start playing football till seventh grade. Right. A, lot, a lot of kids start earlier, so baseball was something that um, you know you started earlier, and I had good success with. When you um, decided uh, to to go at it and play football in the seventh grade, was there a point, Bernie, where you looked at the game and you said, "I can be really good at this"? You know, when I started playing. Again, this really sounds cocky, but you, probably most people who sit in this chair, most of the athletes who may have been a pro level can say this, you're just good at it. Yeah. I mean, I could just throw. I mean, Dan Marino, one of the greatest throwers of all times, um, love watching him throw. And um, I was, me and him were at the same era where um, that's when we started doing OTAs and all the off-season conditioning and all the off-season throwing so that you got ready to throw. So you had perfect timing by training camp. And, and all these quarterbacks would come and they'd try and they'd throw all spring and all summer and they'd get to training camp. And Danny didn't throw that much because Danny could just said he, if he could just throw it, throw it. And he just beautifully could throw that naturally. rock. Naturally. Just naturally could, naturally could throw it. it. And some of us aren't as natural as that, so we had to work a little harder. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in high school, and you're being recruited. I, I'm, I'm imagining at that point you're starting to realize that this is going to take you to the next level. What was the recruitment process like for you? The recruitment process was, um, 
It was, it was, I guess, nice at first seeing all those letters, but then it became too much. I mean, when you get hundreds and thousands of letters, um, would have loved to have gone to, um, you know, Ohio State. I mean, it was taboo to sing here in, uh, in Ohio, but I want, or, or to Pitt. Growing up in Youngstown, uh, Dan Marino was the, uh, uh, was the quarterback at Pitt. He was going to be a senior when I would have been a freshman. I got a chance to learn from him. Or, of course, any Ohio boy wants to go to Ohio State. Did those schools not call? Um, or a Catholic and want to go to Notre Dame. Right. But basically, those schools didn't call. Um, and I uh, wasn't recruited by them. Wow. So it was the West Coast schools, uh, California and Stanford, and the Florida schools, uh, Florida State, Florida, and you know uh, why? University you of ever, Miami. Have you ever talked to anybody that was there? Yeah, at the time? yeah. If you if you think back, we're so old, but uh, it wasn't the wishbone in the mid '80s in the Midwest in the Big Ten. But it was heavy, heavy running. And I've always been tall, slow, and skinny, so not very strong. So I was more into the throwing aspect, not the running side of it. So the the Pac-10 or back Pac-12. California, Florida offered, is where they were throwing. And Florida, Florida schools were throwing the ball. Yeah. So did you have a choice of Florida schools, or was it always for you Miami? Yeah, actually, the first time I got on a plane was to go to the University of Florida, and uh, Mike Shanahan was the offensive coordinator, Kyle Shanahan's dad, yeah. and he ended up being the offensive coordinator for John Elway in, yeah. in all those uh, Denver games. But he was the first guy to recruit me to go down to the Gators, and um, that's taboo for a University <laughs> of Miami to say. It is. And then once uh, Howard Schnellenberger, I got a hold of him, he was um, – he, he, he's an amazing, special man, and, and what he taught me in terms of football is, it was life-changing, but what he taught me in terms of being a man and, and, and life is just, I like, yeah. can't thank him enough. I look back at those times. Bernie, they had some great quarterbacks already on the roster. Oh, yeah, were, that you, was... were you concerned about, will I play here? How am I going to stand out from this crowd of really talented quarterback. I, I was not at all concerned until I got there and then I they didn't have the internet back then so sure. I didn't really realize that Jim Kelly, uh, Mark Richt uh, and this guy Vinny Testaverde who went on to win the Heisman Trophy uh, and Kyle Vanderwin were there and these are all top tier uh, eventually pro quarterbacks and um, it's a great life lesson for me. Um, I went to a couple days of practice. I had a I ran a 5.540, had a buck 85, caved my chest in, you know. Uh, Vinny threw up 3.25, Jim Kelly's in the Hall of Famer. Um, you know, I, I actually considered transferring. Did you really? I went up to Coach Snellenberger a couple days later, and, you know, I said, doesn't look good for me. Um, you know, I'd like to play football. I'm looking at these other guys, you know, it looks like I'll at best be a backup here. And he, and he said, yeah, you're right, it doesn't look good for you. <laughs> Not exactly. How did you end up staying? It's then? not exactly what an eighteen-year-old freshman wants no, to hear. Not comforting words. But you know. But then he said, you know, he said really defining words to me. And he said, you know, it, it's anything in life that's great, everybody wants. So if you're going to run from a challenge now because you're afraid to compete, odds are you're going to be a quitter and you're going to run your whole life. Now, how defining was that? Because you know, I could have went came back home. I could have. Played at a, another school, uh, gave it a shot. He goes, and, and uh, he goes, you can go home. You can be a mommy's boy. Everyone will tell you it was wrong. You're okay, but you you don't want to be. He goes, you don't want to be an old man like me. He goes and have regrets. He goes, it's better to go for it, try and fail. Look yourself in the mirror. Know you did the best you can, 
then you can live with yourself. You don't want to look back with regrets. And I've lived my life like that since he's told me that advice. Was that, was that the defining moment of your life? That was one of the most defining moments, absolutely. So from there, um, you put your nose to the grindstone and you did work. I went for it, And you Absolutely. rose up the ranks at Miami and eventually, you were there at a really exciting time because they obviously were becoming a national power. But in 1983, after losing the first game, you guys run off 11 straight and win a national championship. What was that time like in your life? You know, it came at, me, it came at us all pretty quick. Um, again, when you have great veteran leadership and mentors like um, Howard Snellenberger, um, Mark Chessman was on that team right there, Gary Stevens, a, a lifelong uh, Clevelander, um, was our offensive coordinator. When you have mentors like that, and we had teammates back then, and those guys, um, heck, you see Alonzo Highsmith and me, we still travel with our fullbacks together. I mean, <laughs> the quarterback, fullback, running back, combination it's been a it's been a lifelong thing for me on and off the field wow when you win it and you realize we are the national championship winner what was that moment like you know it was it was pretty surreal in terms of so much time went into that game and I didn't look at it as an upset. I expected us to win. I, I go into every game expecting a win. It's, it's not, they weren't upsets to me. And our goal was we were going to win the national championship that year. So it wasn't a surprise. Um, it was just a matter of fact of, well, that was what I was supposed to do. And, and actually, um, in most of my career, uh, I act like I've been there before. Coach Nolenberger said, act like you've been there before even though we hadn't been, obviously. But you, and as the leader, I tried to do that. So I tried to pretend I was cool on the outside. Of course, inside, you're really excited. And um, that type of leadership and that type of relationships, um, it's, it's special. You're done with your college career. You make the decision that you're going into the NFL. But you did it a little unconventionally. Um, you decided that you were going to enter the supplemental draft. Take me through that decision. It was, a, it was a really interesting time for me from a more life lesson and a macro standpoint. Again, we had mentioned the U.S. Steel and the steel mills in northeastern Ohio had closed down, so most of my family were steel workers. And, and it just wasn't materializing in terms of jobs and, and a lifestyle right, right back then. Um, and then the University of Miami, we were really good, and we were loaded. Coach Snellenberger um, had, had recruited a great, a great amount of guys come in. Jimmy Johnson was now our head coach, and Jimmy Johnson uh, to play with him at the U, at the Cowboys, and then back with the Dolphins. We were going to be special, um, and I was really looking forward to doing that. So I really wasn't going to come out. Um, and then the Vikings made a trade, and Bud Grant had my rights if I was going to come out. And I still wasn't going to come out, but Bud Grant, and I, and I really had a lot of respect for Bud Grant, and, and they had a running back, Chuck Foreman, back then, who was from the U again, and who I was a fan of. And Bud Grant made a statement to me, and he said, I really love your loyalty, son. I really respect that. It's actually why I'm going to draft you. And he, I said, well, sir, I got two years left. I'm not leaving my, my brothers. I'm not leaving my friends and teammates at the U. And he goes, that's, again, why I love you. It's a commendable um, way of, of why I like my quarterbacks to think. But he goes, you got to remember this. 
God doesn't know um, how many hits you have in you and how many throws you have in you. And whether you make a throw um, in high school or college or in the street, you don't, that's one less throw you have the rest of your life. Wow. And um, at some point, you're going to get older. You're not going to be able to take hits. You're not going to be able to throw. Well, I was 19, 20 years old. I thought I was going to throw forever. I'm going to be able to take hits forever. You know, as, as Jay, as you and me sit here, and that's as straight as my right arm goes. That's not an excuse to wow. show my, you know, show my Super Bowl ring. <laughs> but you know, to have you know quite a few surgeries here, to have 35 some overall surgeries. I mean, Bud Grant was so right. But that, even though I kind of discounted that that uh, statement, it kind of resonated with me that hey, maybe even though I do have two years of eligibility left, even though um, I. I don't want, I, I did feel like I was leaving my brothers at the U. There was a responsibility to my family. You know, we weren't really making the, the type of opportunity that, that football would, would lend itself to. So when you decided that you, that you were going to go the supplemental draft route, were you thinking Cleveland the whole time? I, I, was, I wasn't thinking a supplemental route. I was thinking a regular draft and let's go for it yeah. and let's see what happens. But then the opportunity of the supplemental draft uh, came up, um, the rules and the commissioner and people back then, and Al Davis was, was making a move to make a trade for me. Um, so lots of people got involved, and uh, the Al Davis and the Raiders and the NFL back then were suing each other, so you know that was maybe not going to happen. So it just got the stuff, it was stuff the 20-year-old uh, was just over his head. I just wanted to play football and get my degree. Right. And sadly, in that order, okay, I wanted to play right, football, yeah. okay? And I loved playing football at the University of Miami in the Orange Bowl. So all that other stuff started to happen, and I just kind of stepped back from it. And um, the commissioner said, hey, you really have to graduate, and if you graduate, um, then you can go into supplemental draft. Well, back then... Um, you were able to trade picks in a supplemental draft. Right. So before I accepted the commissioner's gracious offer, yeah, maybe did I tell Ernie Corsi and Mr. Modell that I was going to accept this, the supplemental draft and did they make a, probably a call to Mr. Wilson and the Buffalo Bills to execute that trade before I became available, that happened. Yeah. So at that point, you're basically realizing a childhood dream coming true. Yeah, and you're gonna play for your hometown, Cleveland Browns. Yeah, and then it happens again. You had to graduate. I was taking 18 hours of classes back then. There wasn't really the 20-hour rule, and the uh, restrictions on time requirements to practice. So there, there wasn't any time to really uh, relax. And that was another great life lesson I learned then was really the devil works with idle hands. And I was so busy. Even in a place like Miami, you really didn't have time to get in trouble, yeah. you know, and you got things done. Well, along those lines, now all of a sudden I've graduated real quick and you're in training camp. And all of a sudden it's seven weeks of training camp with Marty Schottenheimer and the Cleveland Browns in 1985. And that was, you're right in the thick of it. The era that you played in was more about results than measurables. All of these athletic measurables are such a big deal that we see at the Combine. If Bernie Kosar was coming out of Miami today, would, would you be the cornerstone of a draft? No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Um, um, but, you know, one of the things, uh, again, there's younger people, and 
watching and families, and I'm not trying to say this to be, you know, over dramatic again, but the game was life and death. That was the first thing, and it literally was life and death. And, and as you get older, I know there's more to life than just the W um, of a football game. But it wasn't to me, and especially was not at that time. That was it, and that was the only way I was able to get those Ws was to have that complete commitment to the team and to getting that. Mm -hmm. So that that type of that, that type of mentality um, was essential um, was essential for us, and I'm really proud of of how our guys really um, took on that responsibility. Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns. Performance when it matters most, which is why Bridgestone tires are built for just that. Whether it's driving up to 50 miles to safety after a flat, confident control in wet conditions, or the dependability of an 80,000-mile limited warranty, Bridgestone's roster of tires has got you covered. Bridgestone, official tire of the Cleveland Browns. Conditions apply. Log on to BridgestoneTire.com slash warranty for details. Let's go back and talk about some individual games because you can't talk about that era without those AFC championship games. And I'll start, before we get to the, the first Denver game, one of the most memorable games as a fan for me was that Jets game, eight days before the drive. Uh, it's a double overtime game. It lasted over four hours. Um, I've watched that game back in its entirety. And it seems like it's taking course over the, you know, t taking course over two days. It's so long. What are your, what are your memories from that, '86 game when you're down 20 to 13 with not a whole lot of time to go? You're down 10 with not a whole lot of time to go. Well, Jay, we may have to go two days on this interview if you <laughs> want to do all that. And this is probably bad for TV, but. Um, I carry this as I wear my Navy tie from our Secretary of the Navy, Thomas Modley. He, gave, he gives me this um, pin of never give up the ship. All right? Never give up the ship. Never give up the ship. And is that, that's basically, um, that's, that's kind of. I didn't, I didn't have that, obviously, back at that time. But that, that bringing that out is probably horrible for TV, what I did. But it doesn't matter because that philosophical belief that I, I still carry with me to this day, I absolutely have when I play football. Okay, You never give up the ship. You never quit. And you never concede a loss. Never. You Post believed in that moment at 20 to 10 with whatever four minutes to go that you guys were going to come back here? Hell you yes. You did? Yes, absolutely. There were fans, Bernie, streaming out of the old stadium. Yeah, they thought the season was over. Yeah, they're bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, the, and again, I'm not saying that because it's after the fact. I did. And, and when you do genuinely believe that, it, it, it spreads. The butterfly effect to the people around you. And that it was... Um, and again, it starts uh, stemming from things like, again, Coach Stoneberg, Coach Trestman, you know, talking to me about, you know, quitting um, earlier when I saw Jim Kelly's and, and Vinny Testaverde's and running from challenges, you know, running from, a, running from mistakes. You know, I, I, throw, I threw two picks to solidify that we were down 20 to 10, the two plays before the, the beautiful four minutes and 30 seconds or whatever it was. 
So, you know, I don't want to sit and feel sorry for myself for almost screwing it up. Um, you got to do something about it, and you never quit. And, you know, there's so many funny things in that game. I mean, that's actually the first time in 1986 we did the clock play. Yeah. And we did it a couple times to get a field goal in the first half, and I did it at the end of the game. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about this, but um, that's one of the first times that I got knocked out unconscious on the field and lost a couple of my teeth in was the Was that fourth. the Gastineau hit? That was the Gastineau hit in the fourth quarter. And, and I say this from a karma spirituality standpoint of it because earlier in that game um, me and Mike Babb messed up a center exchange and Kevin Mack jumped on it and he busted his teeth in the first quarter and he lost his teeth he had this stream of blood going down and, and I love Kevin to death he's one of the greatest guys in the world and an essential essential part of us and I love him but I, I had to tell a little fib to him because it was really bad and his teeth are falling out and I told him I hey, Kev he goes, how do I look? I go, you look great. <laughs> Mike, Babb, Mike Babb was trying to tell him the truth, and I had to tell Babb to shut <laughs> no, up. Yeah, he doesn't quick. need to know how bad it and is. Now, but then Kevin, to show you what a gladiator we are, he is, um, he played that whole game like that. He could, I didn't wear a mouthpiece. That's why my teeth got knocked out, and I ended up swallowing them. But Kevin stayed in, and he kept his mouthpiece in the whole game to the point where probably too much information, but even showering after the game, the guy had his mouthpiece in because his teeth were going to fall out. Wow, incredible. But he made the, you know, he made, we made plays. And at the end of the end of that game, even with some of the issues that myself and some of my teammates like Kevin had gone through, and somehow, some way, to be able to figure out a way to win. And again, I like to say that epitomizes, you know, myself. But that really epitomizes that team and those guys. Yeah. I, mean, I love them to this day. Did, just do you have a favorite play from that game when you think back on it? There were so many exciting plays that last four and a half minutes. You know, again, it's, it's, it's such a blessing to have so many of them. It's, um, you know, back then I did a lot of play calling. And then when I did the play calling, um, I would do a lot of play checking and, and checks off of it. And people would call it stealing signals in, in, in those days, right. in these days. Um, and me and uh, me and the coaches and Gary Danielson and, and some and Dan Fike, great great guy, uh, great lineman. We would have we'd have time to spend during the game. And when you see uh, coaches on the sidelines going four, three, under cover two. I mean, it's kind of hard not to look and know what they're doing. It's sure. really their fault for being. So you know, it, were there times, Bernie, where you came to the line and you said, "I know what they're in here." Well, yes. Even before you, even before you broke the huddle. Well, no, you you would confirm it because just like I would have fake signals myself, sure. I would assume I'm not the so only you don't one. Know if they're hot yeah. Or dead. So you would just acquire all the information you could acquire because. Giving fake signals is the essence of the game, too. Sure. I mean, I, I have one of the longest passes I had for a decade or so in Monday Night Football, um, Chicago Bears in 1989, yeah. um, playing Mike Ditka, and we're backed up on the two, two-and-a-half-yard line. I don't like to run the ball backed up on the one- or two-yard line because typically the defense knows you're going to run the ball. So you get, it's a you perfect get, time to throw. So you get, I tell the coaches, get my, your second and ten play ready because the running play is typically not going to work, so I do like to throw it. So I did an audible where I, I, told, the, uh, I told Webster, um, no matter what I say, you're going to run a takeoff. And my fist was a takeoff. Uh, go do a bomb. But I'm going to yell slant. I'm going to tell you run a slant. Right. 
and the D. That's a, that's a deke. You're just faking. Yeah, the but the defensive back, he's going to think we're stupid, and he's going to listen, and I'm going to subtly tell you slant, and you'll just run right by him. And some, things that simple actually work in the pros. And something like that could end up with, a, again, a 97, 98, or a touchdown pass <laughs> that defines a game for you. And little little tricks like that, little little experienced things, um, are, are the collaborative things, again, like Gary Danielson, I'm proud to have, have come up with that lots of people use now. So the next week um, is the famous drive game. When you look back at that game, um, was there one play on that drive, and I know by now you've seen them all too many times to count, was there one play on that drive that particularly drives you nuts? No, not really nuts. You know what, I, um, I had this thing during the game um, I didn't really pay attention to the other quarterbacks. That wasn't my problem, yeah. you know, it, and it distracted me from my focus of I just had to worry about that defensive coordinator and the 11 guys that ended up in a defensive huddle. Mm -hmm. Anything else during that point of the game took me out of my distraction level, and I didn't allow the other guys in the huddle or in the offense. We stayed in our box. We stayed in our rectangle. How were you watching the drive? Well, and On then the bench? No, we, I, Coach Snellenberger taught me in college that always, his quarterbacks must always prepare for the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. Always prepare for the worst case because anybody could do what's easy. So I had to prepare. The worst case scenario is he does the drive and scores. So I was ready, getting my two-minute plays ready. Um, Coach Reeves and Elway, very smart. They basically left no time on the clock. Um, and got it in, so I was then getting ready for overtime. The only time I actually did think I watched a play was I was standing next to Kevin Mack as he threw that touchdown on the slant, because you got to get up to see what's going on. But as the game ended, it's almost like I, uh, I take a lot of pride when I go to another team stadium, okay? To go to Pittsburgh, to go play Chuck Noll and the Rooney's. Um, to go play Paul Brown in, in, in Cincinnati, mm -hmm. okay, go play Jerry Glanville and Warren Moon in, um, in Houston. Um, I take a lot of pride in going in there and then beating their ass and hearing a pin drop and not hearing anything. Um, unfortunately, that, my love for get, doing that to others came on to me that day because as I walked off the field after that uh, drive game, um, you could have heard a pin drop. You couldn't have heard. It was amazing how quiet it was. And then as a, a real tribute to our Cleveland fans, something that's never happened to me um, and I've never seen happen while I'm walking off the field. And, you know, it's a miserable feeling, of course. Um, and you're just reflecting on what you could have done, should have done, what could have happened. And then we've lost, and the fans give us a standing ovation. I mean, it was really amazing. Um, to go from like hearing a pin drop to, you know, um, they got uh, the fans standing up and, and applauding because it really, again, I don't take consolation in losses, but um, it really was a, an emotionally cool year. It was really, it was really something that was special, and and uh, it, the fans appreciated that even in the loss. How do you describe that love affair, Bernie, to those that don't understand it? The love affair between the city of Cleveland and its football team. I think you said it really well in that they don't understand it. You know, there's a, a bond, there's a, uh, a camaraderie, 
There's a genuine love, okay? People use the words I just used, but when, you, when it's genuinely there and you genuinely care and you genuinely want to make a difference and, and you've been given some gifts that can make a difference in people's lives, I, I see that in so many people. And, and I'm so proud um, to be part of the community that genuinely does that. And again, um, yeah, sports is an awesome part of it, um, but it's just a part of it. And, and to see um, the fans, um, their genuine love, their commitment, their passion, and, and really, you know, since the team's come back, I'm not trying to cause issues here, but it's been, it's been a bad 20 years of, of, of football, okay? There's been a million reasons why, okay? And you go, but at the end of the day, the results are the results. And, and for them to, to be so passionate and so caring for just the team, but our area, that's what makes us special. Do you miss that? I think we still have that. How long does it take to get over those losses? Are you, do you ever get over those losses, the drive and the fumble? Yeah, I don't know if I ever, I don't know if you get over them. Um, I think as you get older, um, you, you um, accept them. Um, I think I, uh, as in life, I really like to kind of see the positive sides of things. So. Um, I try to take out the positive stuff of it. Now, I don't take, again, consolations in losses, but I don't want to, as you get older, just eat yourself up from within because you can't change what happened. Um, but some of the life lessons that came out of it, some of the experiences, heck, some of the plays, some of the lessons of just not quitting. When we were down in a lot of those games, there's a lot of adverse things that happened that, again, it... it makes me proud to, to be part of really a war with those with my brothers out there. Yeah. I want to talk about the end of your time here in Cleveland. It was really, a, it was a bizarre time. Um, that was when the term diminishing skills came to be part of the Cleveland lexicon. What, what was that whole time like for you? Well, First, this is partially why I'm doing holistic medicine now and feeling so good is, you know, you get all those injuries. And at the time, nobody wants to admit you're hurt. But by definition, every day we're living, our skills are getting diminished. We're all diminishing. Yeah, yeah so it, if you're playing pro football and you're taking the beating that I took and all those hits, um, by definition, your, your body is deteriorating. Sure. Um, it, um, did I think it had deteriorated? Um, to the point where I couldn't play. I knew I could still play, but I knew the time was coming within a couple years. I mean, again, we had said earlier, the average career is three, a little less than three and a half years. You know, I was, I played 12, I was in my ninth year then. Um, the thing that was tricky with it then was we were in first place. Um, we, were, we, were, we weren't any good, truthfully, but we were good enough to eke out four or five wins. We were five and two or five and three, we were in first place. Mm -hmm. um, and it was interesting. I thought I was playing really good football, right? and I was. And, and I had like a you know, 70, 80 quarterback rating, which statistically stinks. Um, and then I get released, and I go down to Dallas, and I'm playing with the defending Super Bowl champs with a loaded, talented team of, of young players. And um, I actually did not play that good of football, but the team was so loaded that I had like a quarterback rating of like 110 <laughs> because, again, you, hear, you and me talk about this on the air and off the air a lot, is um, us quarterbacks who are victims or beneficiaries 
of the people around us. And, and again, when you have good talent and good stuff around you, you're going to play better. And um, sometimes when you don't, you have to be a little more resourceful, a little more creative. And, yeah. and um, I've, I've been blessed to be able to have some gifts on, on both sides of that. What was the Super Bowl experience like for you in Dallas? That had to be, and you, there, were, there was a stretch of the season where you were a big, big part of what was going on there. Well, to, you know, for the basis of this show, to have, you know, been 0-3 uh, in AFC Championship games, to uh, get the awesome opportunity to get a fourth mulligan and play in the <laughs> NFC Championship game against the awesome San Francisco 49ers and the great, great Ronnie Lott and finally get a win against that awesome man and he didn't pick off one of my passes for one of the few <laughs> times. He got a, he's one of the few guys that got me most of the time. So to get that monkey off my chest, to get the opportunity to win an NFC Championship game, yeah. um, to, to be in a Super Bowl, um, to get this ring, you know, it, it, at the time it meant a lot to me and now as I get older it means that much more to me. You know, to um, to probably not to definitely not to be one of the most athletic guys to play the position, um, to play in the game, but yet to end up with a Super Bowl championship ring and then with a national championship ring, I'm just so blessed. Not many have done that. Select company. You go to Miami uh, as a backup to Dan Marino to uh, to wrap up your career. What was that like for you? It, it was um, it was a different point in the life because I had, I knew then that again you're hitting 10 11 years um you start really adding up on the broken bones the surgeries um the diminishing skills is is more accurate than not so um that part of me uh enjoyed it because i was coming to terms with who i was yeah. you know and and i'm really proud of what i've accomplished and and at that point you you still want to do more because there still is nothing like playing football um, it, it beats the heck out of maturity and growing up. Um, but, you know, I started having kids. Um, I was married. Um, my family, they had situations going on there. Um, I wanted to be able to be here in my mid-50s and be somewhat in good shape. You know, I, I didn't expect that I'd, um, you know, be uh, the doctor or the holistic medicine guy taking care of myself. I figured there'd be others that would have figured it out. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, the ability to have played with my kids, to have been able to be somewhat healthy, um, that, was, that was something that was somewhat cognizant in my mind. If I had a magic wand and I could wave it and you'd be 21 again and could go do the whole movie over again, would you do it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. How would, how would it be different? the second time for you? You know, people, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not one to really over, over want to change things. Yeah. I, I, you know, what happened, happened, and I'm, I believe it happened for a reason, and I'm trying to learn from it and make the best out of it. Um, you know, and I overanalyze or wish something else would have happened, I tend to go down just a, a negative path. Um, you know, I, I, what's happens happening, and, and let's make the most of it, and, yeah. and see see what spirituality has in store for us. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, I want to touch on what you're doing now, because I'm fascinated by it. Your personal health has gone through some ebbs and flows, but just from a personal standpoint, knowing you for the last couple of years as I have, you've never looked better. What are you up to these days? What's the secret, <laughs> my friend? Well. If we had more than a couple hour shows, we got so many good stories. And, and, and I'm not trying to say this to, to pitch or, or to make a sales pitch. I, it, it's, I started this 
this holistic wellness, this journey really towards self-preservation for, for me and my family and friends uh, to feel good. So many of my, my, uh, my brothers, my older brothers that have played in the league, the, the pre-1993, 4,100 guys that, um, that really started the foundation of our league. So the pain and suffering, the surgeries, the things they're going through, it, it's really incredibly tragic. And, you know, I'm, again, I'm not, I don't need pity, and I'm not looking, saying this to, to uh, self-pity or to glorify anything, but, you know, 30-some surgeries, 70-some broken bones, and again, I'm not counting the little things like fingers and toes. Those type things add up to you. And, you know, here's a guy, it was a, a few years ago, um, if I was sitting here with you, um, my blood pressure is 160 over 120. I probably was on four or five high blood pressure pills, three or four cholesterol pills. Athletes, ex-athletes, we live on anti-inflammation pills. You know, that's 10 to 12 pills right there. And Jay, have you even got to the surgeries with pain medication and sleeping medication? And you're still not sleeping and the stuff still hurts and you still have high blood pressure, cholesterol, and inflammation in your joints. Yet you're a good patient and you're taking all of that stuff. I didn't feel, at least for me, I wasn't at all getting better, not picking on any of the doctors. We have great medicine here. It just wasn't working for me. So for me now to use food as my medicine, um, megadose vitamins, and the reduction and staying away from as many of the pills as possible, and, and I'm a big believer in, in, in the CBD with it. Yeah. Absolutely. It's been life-changing for me. You look great. I know you tell me you feel great. I believe you because yeah. you, you carry it with you well. Uh, and I'm glad to see that you're in such a good place. I really am. Well, I'm still not as fashionable <laughs> as you, young man, but thank you, sir. <laughs> I don't know. You're looking pretty good, Bernie. I know I speak for everybody in Browns Nation when I say a heartfelt thank you for all of the great memories and all of the wins and even the lows, it was a hell of a journey. And uh, I know I speak for Browns fans when I say thank you. Well, You've I, enjoyed it. I appreciate it. There were more highs than lows, and go Browns. Yes, absolutely. Thank you again for joining us for Club 46, driven by Bridgestone. We're here all season long talking to all-time great Cleveland Browns. We'll see you again soon.